Hi, everybody, and welcome to the brand new podcast, Preconditions of Intelligibility. My name is Ray Lawrence, and joining me as my co-host is John Marcus. And this is a layman's conversation about exceptional presuppositional apologetics and revelational epistemology. And uh, how are you doing, good, there, John? How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. This is going to be kind of fun, kind of interesting. Yeah, None I'm of excited, us has ever done a uh, podcast. Absolutely. This is going to be fun. I'm, I'm really uh, looking forward to it. Yes, absolutely. And I'm really looking forward to the subject matter today. Uh, this is something that John and I have been talking about for a little bit, um, about Van Til's Apologetic, the book by Greg Bonson, the great uh, presuppositional apologist. And uh, this is something that we've been looking forward to digging into for a long time. And uh, we thought it'd be a great idea if maybe we just kind of broke it down on a chapter by chapter basis. And we'll probably be doing several podcasts about it. Yep. 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 Looking forward to it. And uh, like you just said, we, um, we have um, lots, I mean, we have a lot to go over first of all. Uh, and we're only going to be doing this probably for about 25, 25 minutes, maybe. Uh, it's not going to be a long podcast, but uh, I think it's um, we're going to have to cram a lot in here. <laughs> but uh, try to make it. I, I, I mean, uh, try to make it as easy to understand as possible. Um, we are not scholars. We're not professionals. Uh, we are simply two men who seek to glorify God and how we defend the gospel and how we defend our faith. Um, and we think that the presuppositional approach is the best way to do it, uh, and the easy, and honestly, the easiest way. And, you don't have to be, uh, like I said, you don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be a professional to do this. Um, you just need to know your Bible. Yes, absolutely. And uh, as First uh, Peter 3.15 says, you need to be prepared to give an answer for your faith. And presuppositional apologetics is the only really biblical approach to that that is God-honoring and Christ-honoring treats the word of God with the reverence that it deserves in mind. No, I, I completely agree. Um, and I, <laughs> whenever I, I say this, I, I, people get triggered a lot when I say this and I, I get it. Um, and I won't spend too much time. I guess we don't have to spend too much time before diving in, but um, people get really upset when you say that there's only one correct apologetic methodology. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, I'm just, I'm just going off of what scripture says. Um, I'm going off of what scripture says here and just taking it to a logical conclusion um, regarding, you know, if scripture says, and look, I'm a, I'm reformed. We're both reformed, uh, through and through. Mm -hmm. Um, and as someone who is reformed, I'm going to look at this from a reformed perspective and, uh, the reformed perspective has no problem, uh, claiming something to be true and then everything denying that truth being false. Uh, so mm -hmm. I, I look at that regarding presuppositional apologetics is that, you know, if, if the Bible has declared to us, what we are to do, or if you want to look at it from this way, if God has just shown us what to do and we don't do it, we're in disobedience. Mm -hmm. And the really good thing about Bonson's book, uh, Van Til's Apologetic, is that while Van Til was a really brilliant, brilliant uh, mind when it comes to philosophy, theology, um, his writings tended to meander in a lot of different directions. And that's not to say that he did not he was not a, a brilliant man because he absolutely was, but a lot of his gems were really scattered throughout his right. books. And the thing that I like about Van Til's apologetic Bonson 
which was this was the I believe this was the last project he was working on before, before his he death passed away. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, yep. Yeah, he pulled all these observations from all these books together into a systematic whole where you could it would follow the logical process of Van Til's thought. Right. Um, and it also clarified a lot because uh, John, as you know, you know Van Til, like I say, absolutely brilliant. But sometimes, especially since he dealt with a lot of uh, the lingo and concepts of uh, philosophical idealism, sometimes he could be a little hard to follow. Um, and uh, Bonson was much, much more of a a work for like people just getting into right. presuppositional you, politics. Now, if you had already read primers on Van Til, or if you had known things about him, or read Bonson beforehand, that's one thing. I mean, for me, you know, when I first started getting into to Van Til. Uh, it really now I'm not going to sit here and say it was easy to read or it is easy to read. It's not, but right. what, and I'm not saying this is the best way to go about it either, but I had read a lot of Bonson. I had read a lot about presuppositional politics before that. Um, I had kind of mm-hmm. already gotten the primer out of the way in a lot of ways. And so when I started reading mm-hmm. Van Til, a lot of things just kind of clicked. Um, it wasn't right. like it was a foreign concept. Something that I really like about, uh, what Bonson wrote in here and what he expounded on in Van Til's writing was uh, the theme that uh, Christ must be our ultimate authority, not just at the end, but at the beginning of our philosophy, reason, from uh, Texas, Matthew twenty two thirty seven, Colossians 2, 3, and Proverbs 1, 7. And uh, I think that's an absolutely vital aspect is that we can't use our fallen autonomous reasoning to reason to God. Um, God must be at the beginning and the end right. of our reasoning. Yeah, exactly. I think um, the, the biggest pitfall, I think, and uh, we, I think you see this a lot, is um, when man, when we you know, start to try to explain anything via our reasoning, first and foremost, um, rather than starting with God. And I guess to clarify that, and I'm, I mean, it, you know, Bonson goes into it a little bit here. Um, mm-hmm. uh, not a whole lot, but, you know, we get into like the idea of ultimate starting points. Um, and when we um, reject God as our ultimate starting point, or when we don't start with God as our ultimate starting point, um, we have no basis for accounting for anything. Uh, for justifying mm-hmm. anything. And I, I want to be clear on this too, because there's a distinction and a difference between justifying something and then using your reasoning. Um, mm-hmm. We as, you know, presuppositionalists have no problem using our reasoning. Like we don't, we don't disagree with that. We clearly agree that we use our reasoning to know things. Uh, and yet mm-hmm. the only way we're able to account for that reasoning. In fact, basically the question comes down to one of epistemology, right? Where it's uh, how do we know, that our reasoning faculties are working properly. How do we know that anything that I'm claiming right now is true? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's uh, very interesting. Uh, what Van Til was fond of saying was that the unbeliever can count, but they cannot account for counting. Right. Um, they can they can have a, a knowledge after a fashion, but they cannot have the true knowledge because they don't attribute knowledge to a transcendent source. Um, they if the universe is chance, if the universe is simply random, then knowledge in terms of a, ra- a rational knowledge is impossible to have. 
because it's ultimately everything is chance. It's uh, the void as Van Til well, was this, fond of saying. Right. And this, this works in, in, I mean, you, you kind of just cited um, an atheistic worldview there, which is very mm-hmm. uh, appropriate in our, in our culture and uh, in our, um, in our time even. Um, but I, you know, it works in every, every scenario, any worldview um, you do the internal critique of saying, okay, how does this worldview account for logic? How does it account for reason? How does it count for, as Van Til would say, our counting? Um, mm-hmm. How does it do that? Uh, and every worldview, um, not every worldview tries to answer that. Um, but even the ones that would, that you would even hypothetically say, okay, this is their accounting for it. It doesn't work. And the reason why it doesn't work, um, there's a, there's a number of reasons, but my name, uh, primarily the reason why it doesn't work is because it doesn't start with the triune God of scripture. Yes. And the reason why that's even important uh, and the reason why we get into that, and we don't have to dive too much into this right now, um, mm-hmm. getting into the one and the many, um, mm-hmm. that, that God is, um, you know, one in three, three in one. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, we all, we're going to always have to be careful talking about the Trinity. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. Because, um, uh, but it's, right. And even, uh, even um, when we talk about the Trinity, if it, it's, if it's something, if we could, describe the trinity like that then it would it would not be it wouldn't be transcendent right if, uh, we, if we could completely understand and, and fit god into a box then he's no longer mm-hmm. god i mean that's really what it comes yes. down to but that doesn't mean again you know separating that from us actually being able to know things about god and i think that the biggest right. thing we have to realize mm-hmm. is that when it comes to god there are things we do know about him um yes and there are things that the believer knows about him uh, the unbeliever, yes. I'm sorry, excuse me, the unbeliever even knows about him. Um, but there's mm-hmm. a yes. distinction in what the unbeliever knows and what the believer knows. And not only is there a distinction there, but there's also a distinction in the fact that the unbeliever cannot gain knowledge of the triune God without first being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Um, right, absolutely. And I think that's a vital, a vital thing to point out when we talk about God as our starting point. Um, because the unbeliever looks at the world around him and says... You know, everything is either chance, matter in motion. They either look at things from like an atheistic perspective or that any number of other worldviews other than the Christian one. Uh, and it right. all starts with the fundamental rejection and rebellion against the triune God um, due to their sinful nature. So, right. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And I, no, you're fine. And um, yeah, I think that's that's one. That, and that's some actually I've been reading about here recently of uh, some uh, excellent work by uh, Christopher Watkin, uh, Brant Bosterman. Um, uh, is about how in the Trinity we have the only possible answer to the problem of the one and the many because uh, we have uh, ultimacy in both unity and plurality in the ontological Trinity. Right. And uh, without that, you know, then basically we are left with, you know, a complete, you're completely atomized, separated, cut off rea- uh, reality constituent of untold trillions of uh, facts that can't interact with each other, or we have a complete uh, monism where if everything's one, there's no distinction. And then we just have uh, just a big blob that we can't know anything about. So um, I think I really like some of the way that some of the, uh, Van, the current Van Tillian philosophers are really taking Van Til's original themes and just really, just really expounding them. Right. Definitely. Okay. Okay. So, uh, yeah, and that was and that was something that uh, you you must presuppose uh, God 
at the beginning of your logic or else you're not going to have any basis for logic. And uh, when we have, say, uh, when you have people who will say things like, uh, you know, how, how can you, you can't, it, it's the, it, they often accuse presuppositionalists of uh, circular reasoning without understanding that if you come to ultimate authorities, all reasoning is going to be circular. Right. It's unavoidable because if you have, you say you have an ultimate authority, but it's not a circular reasoning because, well, you can uh, look to this authority to validate that, then that's not your actual authority. Right. It's like saying, well, I can, I can validate the existence of God by the use of arguments, proofs, and that. Then you're not actually saying that God is your ultimate authority. You're saying that logic and proofs are. Right. I think, I think the biggest thing we have to keep in mind when we, we talk about this, especially as Christians, because even among Christians, uh, I even say even especially among Christians, there's a hang up, I think, um, in that we tend to, you know, we will talk about um, God and we'll say, yes, we believe the word of God. We believe what scripture says regarding who God is. But we have to, I think one of the biggest things we have to understand is that God is the source of everything, of mm -hmm. all things true, uh, of all mm -hmm. reality. Um, he is the source of that. He is the fountainhead of that. Um, and nothing is, I mean, um, you know, Hebrews 1 talks about this and John 1 talks about this regarding who Christ is. You know, not, not anything was made that wasn't made through him. Um, right. So he is, he is, all things were made through him. All things were made by him and all things are made for him and all things. There's no caveat there. There's no little asterisks mm -hmm. above all things that says, well, all things except for, you know, maybe this thing over here on the side or, you know, this right. thing over here. No, if we, if we really are going to take scripture seriously, we have to understand that when scripture talks about God being uh, the fear of the Lord, being the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, it, you know, the, the classicist or whoever else is arguing, the Christian who is not a presuppositionalist has to do a mm -hmm. lot of gymnastics to get fear of the Lord being the beginning of knowledge to mean something other than knowledge as a whole. Because I've heard, right. you know, and then, yeah, right. And then you get to, you know, eisegesis. We're, we're going to try to read our interpretations of philosophy into the biblical text exactly. rather than exegesis. Right. And there's, and we have to be very careful with that. Right. We have to be very careful with that um, because as, as much as it's true that Paul used, um, you know, Aristotelian philosophy language uh, mm -hmm. in how we describe things, because that was, you know, one of the easiest ways to get his points across during that time mm -hmm. period. So, you know, us talking about epistemology, for example, we, I kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier uh, about how we know what we know about things. And Van Til's in, in you know, the first chapter, uh, 1.2 says, you know, we have an epistemologically self-conscious apologetic. Uh, and uh, mm -hmm. what that means and I'll just even read a little bit of what he says here. Um, our Christian epistemology um, should thus be elaborated and worked out in a way that is consistent with its own fundamental pr principles or presuppositions, lest it be incoherent and ineffective. So our method of knowing is determined by our message as a whole, thus being influenced by, even as it influences, our convictions about reality, which is God's existence and nature and man's nature, relation to God, place in the universe, purpose, etc., so we ought not to espouse one thing theologically and then practice something else in our general scholarship. So something that's very interesting about this book is it also goes into a little bit of a biography of Van Til, how he was actually born in the Netherlands, 1895, didn't come to America until he was 10, and English was a second language for right. him. And 
think a lot of people who might have some difficulty uh, with some of his, maybe his cadence in his writing, uh, the way some of his phrases are, can be due to the fact that he is not a native-born uh, English speaker, but had to learn the language. Right. Yeah, you're 100% correct about that. I think, um, you know, we mentioned it earlier, but it's not like he's necessarily the clearest person to read. Um, because, again, right. we have to realize when he was writing, who he was, who his audience was, um, and what he was responding against. Um, and if you don't have that, I think, backdrop, um, a lot of what he says <laughs> is going to kind of go over your head. Um, so right. yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, his life was interesting. I mean, yeah, like you said, you know, born in Holland, come over, comes over when he's 10, um, and, uh, just really kind of shows from a young age, his, um, capacity to understand things, to, um, just to, to know things and to, he had such an intellect. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that really catapulted him. Um, into seminary catapulted catapulted him into um you know um just uh academia as a whole um mm-hmm. and yeah he was uh he was a giant man yeah and he has a, a phd in philosophy from princeton university uh which that was always one of my the major things that kind of burned me a little bit was a well-known uh classical apologist uh, in a book which i will not name here uh, asserted that for all of his many gifts van till was not a philosopher and that just threw me for a loop that this certain classical apologist would say right that. yeah and that's kind of again an assertion without you know any backing it's just mm-hmm. you know yeah. he, he definitely was a philosopher uh, a theologian first and foremost but his, he definitely had a philosophy i mean yes he had a philosophy of life he had a philosophy that flowed out of his theology Right, exactly. And uh, the theology and the philosophy, were, they were intertwined together. And, and that was, the design was, and, you know, it was very, very much as he said, you know, uh, with, without God, you can't, with specifically the triune God of Scripture, you can't even have knowledge to have philosophy. Right. Um, and, and, you know, the biggest thing I think that he fought against, uh, um, maybe not, well, I don't know, maybe it is the biggest thing or not. One of the biggest things, at the very least, uh, was this idea, and we've kind of—I don't know if we've talked about it too much—but the idea of neutrality, um, and mm-hmm. in our apologetic, especially. Um, and Van Til was a staunch um, proponent of abandoning this idea of neutrality between the believer and the unbeliever, um, and that that shouldn't be confused with uh, common ground per se. Um, the unbeliever right. and the believer, we both clearly share common ground in that we are both made in God's image. We're both living in his world. Um, we both are able to function, know things. Um, we are both able to use our senses, logic, reasoning, all of that. We, we both can do that. It's not like we become a different species or a different, uh, you know what I mean? Obviously. Um, but the distinction was right. between this idea of neutrality as if there is this neutral ground or neutral knowledge uh, that the unbeliever can have that we can both have regarding God. Uh, and it really, what it ends up doing, and this is one of the reasons why um, we would say that presuppositional apologetics is um, intrinsically a reformed apologetic. Um, and, mm. and in that we totally agree with Calvin and with the other reformers that the, that man uh, is totally depraved, not in just right. certain aspects, but in every aspect of life, including our ability to think and reason. Yes. Um, our, and yes. that's a huge, that's a huge um, point 
that we have to make when we talk about apologetics, because what we tend to end up doing or tend up seeing end up seeing um, among even Christians who are witnessing to their their friends or their family about the gospel is what do we try to do? Um, we try to use evidences to kind of explain things to the unbeliever um, or to try to convince them. Um, whether we say we're trying to convince them or not, we have a fundamental attitude that portrays that comes across as you asked me a question, you challenged my belief. And so now I have to answer that. I, and what, mm-hmm. what it immediately does is we, we essentially let the unbeliever dictate the rules of engagement in our apologetic. And Van Til was very right. clear that there is no neutral ground, ground, meaning that when the unbeliever comes at you with these questions, we don't have to respond the way that the unbeliever dictates um, the rules of engagement. Um, right. Again, ultimately what it comes down to is the unbeliever does not have a foundation or a basis for asserting anything um, apart from um, the triune God being the source of knowledge and truth and all that stuff, because they don't assert that, but it's still true. So even though they don't assert what they're doing, right, is they're borrowing from our worldview, the Christian worldview, in order to make sense of everything around them, uh, and then to argue against the Christian worldview. Right. And as it says in scripture about uh, answering the fool according to her folly and not answering the fool according to their folly, uh, we can't play the game where we're just going to stack up our evidences against each other and see which one is more rational. And that is something when I first started reading Van Til, and this is grand, this has been about, it's only been within the last three and a half to four years. Mm -hmm. Um, But reading classical apologetics and things of that nature the thing that always stuck out to me, the thing that always dissatisfied me was these are the best, the, the argument was these are the best probable arguments yeah. uh, for the existence of a generic deity. Right. And we start from there, then we start moving forward. Then we can say, is the Bible reliable? Then they can say, well, was Jesus really Christ? And then they can say, well, what does this mean? Right. But the thing that struck me like a thunderbolt about Van Til is it's called the, uh, the blockhouse method you don't do that you you have to defend christianity as a whole as a circular whole not just a little bit here and a little bit there but the whole theistic system because uh proving a quote-unquote proving that a generic god exists will send you just to hell to hell just as quickly as any other it has to be the triune god of scripture it has to be the the god of christianity it has to be Christ. Exactly right. And God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And uh, as Van Til noted, uh, a lot of times, well, almost all the time, I'll do a quick edit there. Heresy usually comes down to a denial of the Trinity in some form. Right. Right. I, I would agree. And I, I mean, I would even go a step further even. Uh, if it's possible, mm-hmm. and even say heresy usually ends up um, being a denial of inerrancy uh, and infallibility mm-hmm. of the word of God. Uh, that the, the very first fundamental step in, um, in doctrine that is not from the Lord is, did God really say this? Um, and that's essentially what happens in the Garden of Eden, right? Where the Satan, uh, right. Satan, the serpent, you know, comes to Eve and basically says, you know, did God really say this? And there's a, a subtle twist, right? right? Um, and I think what we see even um, in this realm, too, regarding, like you said, heresy and regarding uh, even the use of like apologetics is that instead of looking at things and saying, no, this is what God has said, 
there's a, a, a twist of doubt there, a twist of even kind of questioning and saying, well, you know, I guess we could be wrong about that. You know, did, right. Let's, did he really let's, say this? Or, you know, how did he say it? And you think about the way scripture is when you read the Bible, and this is for anyone who's listening, uh, when you go ahead and read the Bible, you, you, you know, let me ask you this. Does do the people in the Bible, those who follow the Lord, those who are faithful to the Lord, do you ever actually see them um, either questioning or getting away with questioning God's decrees. So when God says, commands them to do something, whether that be Abraham offering Isaac or um, going to the, the land of Canaan or um, anything like that, is, is God ever, um, does he ever really even allow us, or I should say, you know, those in the Bible to kind of get away with this idea of being able to question his motives, question his, his decree like you know you know and i guess we could say you know it's a, maybe a little different because god's obviously not appearing to me in a burning bush right now but then even then like if you talk to atheists or if you talk to unbelievers you know they what is their main thing their main thing is well everything can be explained by science like oh miracles are mm-hmm. they're not really miracles they, they can be explained away there's no supernatural thing it's just everything is natural everything can be explained in that way um, and what we see, though, mm-hmm. is that when God reveals himself to his people, um, even, you know, in general, his people don't always respond favorably. You know, I mean, they, they know it's mm-hmm. the Lord, though. They know it's the Lord. They might not always obey him after the fact, but they know it's the Lord speaking. Absolutely. I agree. Let's look at did Jonah, uh, did God tell Jonah to go to Nineveh? And, of course, Jonah didn't want to. He tried to get on the ship to go to to Tarshish and was God like, well, you know, Hey, let's talk about this, Jonah. Perhaps we can do a, <laughs> right. a bargain. Perhaps we can do a deal, a little quid pro quo. No, no. God orders, right. You obey. Exactly. And then, and that includes not only that, our apologetic methodology as well. Uh, as like you said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And, when Eve was tempted by uh, the serpent, it was it was kind of like let's use our autonomous reasoning, let's use uh, autonomous meaning our just our own facilities without any our own reasoning and judgment without looking to any scripture or anything like that. Let's use our own reasoning to decide, and we saw how that turned out poorly. Exactly. So, yeah. so I, I think you know you're right, and so that's where when we we come to apologetics. We have to have the same mentality on Sunday that we do on a Wednesday. Um, Absolutely. And, and meaning that when we go to church on Sunday, there is generally, I'm not saying everyone doesn't have doubts or, you know, struggling with issues, but generally we go to church on Sunday and what do we, we do? We, we, we praise the Lord. We worship the Lord. And we generally go away feeling refreshed. If you're a Christian, um, I, I hope mm-hmm. you go away feeling refreshed. Right. <laughs> it should. Right. That's word and being in prayer, hearing the word preached. It fills you with a sense of resolve, a sense of, okay, going about my week, I can do this. Um, but when Wednesday hits or Thursday or whatever, when, when and, you know, it's a lot of times we have this different mentality when someone comes at us, when kind of the rubber meets the road uh, and you're challenged in your faith, how quickly we abandon um, mm-hmm. the word that we heard on Sunday, the truth of that, the reality of Well, look at all the, right, look at all the recent uh, apostasy apostasy that we've been seeing going on just here in the last right exactly so, right from these so-called celebrity 
uh, celebrity preachers, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, questions that they have aren't being answered, things like that, which they have been. Um, but with, right. with all that in mind, uh, we have to realize that when we come into apologetics, it's not simply for the sake of providing an answer for the person who's asking. Uh, in fact, it's not even primarily mm-hmm. even about answering, um, you know, giving the proper answer in the sense of someone gives you a question and you're like, oh, I got I got to scramble for an answer here. Here's the answer. And then, OK, great. Well, the end, you answered mm-hmm. that correctly. Good job on the next one. No, it's you. Right. Really what we are doing is we are we are defending the faith that was delivered for all the saints. Um, we are and, and mm-hmm. the way we do that as even as first Peter 315 starts off by saying is by setting apart Christ as Lord first and foremost. And then once we've yes. done that, keeping that in mind in our hearts, setting him apart as Lord, knowing that, believing that, trusting in that truth, then we defend the faith. Um, and that is how we go about it. We don't, we don't start with our autonomous reasoning. We start with the word of God, which is actually the word of God. Uh, it is in some, you know, it's not man who has delivered this. It's God himself who has delivered this to his saints to uplift us, to uh, encourage us to make us strong in the faith. Um, and you know, how foolish would be be not to take advantage of what he's given us. Um, so yeah, I think, I think we have to keep that in mind. Right. Absolutely. And, um, it's either, um, I, it was either Van Til or Bonson said, uh, I believe it was Van Til. So you either, you have a choice, you either have or autonomy one or the other. And, uh, the choice that's made there is going to be where to use a Christ honoring apologetic or one that seeks to honor the fallen rational nature of man. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, kind of going so, along with this too, um, this idea of uh, neutral ground and, and, you know, and as we were saying earlier, you know, this idea of neutral ground is not true. It's not biblical. Uh, nowhere do we see mm-hmm. in scripture regarding the existence of God, because I know, uh, you know, our, our detractors would love to say, well, yeah, you know, clearly there are examples of God giving evidences, things like that. And I, I want to be clear and say that God's existence is never justified by evidences, uh, meaning right. that uh, if he does choose to use evidence to reveal something about his nature or character, it's generally out of judgment, <laughs> not out of the oh, sense yeah. of, oh, well, I guess I'll appease the human who's asking for me to reveal himself, myself to him. No, no, no. It's, it's well, a lot of, right. Yeah. There's a lot of, well, there's a lot of uh, prophets of Baal who found that out. That's one example, (laughs) but throughout scripture, what do we see? We see that the existence of God, the triune God is presupposed. Genesis one, one, what it doesn't say in the beginning, there was this being and he was God. And we know he was God because X, Y, Z. No, it says in the beginning, was God <laughs> uh, in the beginning? Exactly. Heavens in the earth. Excuse me. Right. Right. So exactly going, going along with that truth, um, we have to realize too that um, uh, basically when we when we put God in this um, when when we let the unbeliever decide and say, well, you know, you need to prove to me that God exists. When we acquiesce to that unbeliever's demand, what we are essentially doing is what C.S. Lewis. Uh, and, and Van Til actually borrowed this this terminology from was, uh, and this is a quote from him, um, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. 
He is the judge. God is in the dock. The trial might even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God in the dock. And the whole point Van Til and even C.S. Lewis was even making here. And, and, and again, C.S. Lewis wasn't, um, you know, I, he didn't invent presuppositional apologetics. Um, and frankly, neither did Van Til. Uh, but basically what we can say about this is Van Til looking at this and saying, you know, when we when we put God on trial, think of that courtroom setting. Uh, we put him on trial. You know, he's the one on trial. He's got to demonstrate and prove that he exists. He has to prove whether it's his existence or anything else. He has to prove something to us. What we have then done is made God the creation and us the creator. We have essentially right. done exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden, what every sinful human being does in their heart. And it's we make ourselves God. Uh, we try to. We make ourselves king. We try to have autonomous reasoning that says, I don't need God to do this. I can do this on my own. In fact, not only can I do this on my own, but God has to adhere, adhere to and abide by the laws that I set in place, the rules that I set in place or that I think are, are important or true. And they might even be true laws or true facts about things, right? But when we make God right. subservient to that knowledge, he is no longer God. And not only that, but as Christians, we are not honoring God. In fact, we're dishonoring him and we are not glorifying him. In fact, we're disobeying him and we're sinning when we do that. And that's a hard thing, I think, for people who aren't presuppositionalists to hear. Um, when I say that, and again, it goes for hand in hand with basically like follow, follow this line of thinking here. When we do that, when we argue in a way that is not presuppositional, we are sinning against the holy God because he has provided the means by which we are to argue apologetically. And by mm -hmm. tossing that aside, we are arguing in a manner that is not glorifying to him. Um, and that's huge. That's really huge because then you have no segue. You have no clear segue, I should say, between mm -hmm. apologetics and giving the gospel and evangelism. And we'll, we'll get right, into this. Yes. Uh, we'll talk that more later. I think it'd be good. Um, there is a clear distinction, a clear, I'm sorry, a clear um, bridge between presuppositional apologetics and evangelism. You cannot do proper apologetics without evangelism. Um, right. They go hand in hand. Right. And Van Til would even say uh, there's a, uh, if they try to separate them, it's a very, it's a false, it's a false dichotomy. You can't right. separate them. Correct. Right. And that, that was his, that was the brilliance of Van Til was he took two very different schools of thought that was within um, the apologetic schools at the time. Uh, and I think the interesting thing about Van Til is he combined the, uh, the apologetic methodologies of two very different uh, uh, people, B.B. Uh, Warfield and Abraham Kuyper. Right. And create and he took the elements from both and put them into this comprehensive system. Right. Right. And, and then that's the thing where there was a lot that he even learned from guys like Warfield and Kuiper that he, he championed. And says, this is great. But they're fundamental. There are differences um, in between how Kuiper viewed things and there were things that Warfield viewed that that Van Til looked at and said, this is great. And then things he looked at, this is great, but you're missing something here. And same with guys mm -hmm. like, I mean, he, this is when this wasn't just true for Warfield. I know this is just true for guys like Bovink. Um, yeah. Uh, and others where that they were, these are guys are heroes of the faith, 
Uh, and yet, and there were in, in, in snippets in some, and maybe even in bigger ways in others, they were inconsistent regarding neutral ground, regarding how yes. we argue apologetically. Uh, and Bonson yes. does a great, I think, a great job in this book of kind of pointing that out and, and showing um, how that was the case, and, and even showing a lot of the sources of Van Til critiquing. Uh, and this, this is the beauty of Van Til. He was um, fully understanding and aware of the fact that he um, was indebted, as we all are, to these giants of the faith that came before him. But he was not so indebted as to think that they were infallible or perfect in their theology or that they were above right. critique either. Um, right. And he even said that about himself as correct. well. Right. right. And, uh, you know, and there was elements that, you know, by the end of his, and he lived a very long time. I believe he lived to 91, I believe, for yeah. 92. But even at the end, he's like, he was seeing things that, you know, he was like, I wish I would develop this out further. But then we had the people to come on after him to do that. Right. Well, we're pretty much finished up for today. We have a lot more that we can talk about, about uh, this uh, marvelous uh, volume by Greg Bonson called Van Til's Apologetic. There is such a rich and diverse uh, amount of information in here. It's really a fantastic read. If you have interest in uh, presuppositional apologetics, uh, Van Til's Apologetic is a must pick up. Yeah, it's a great book. Um, I, and when we come back, I guess the uh, next time we do this, um, and uh, we, we will go into, I mean, we kind of just went through a brief intro over um, uh, like what, what presuppositional apologetics is, the aim of it. Um, we'll probably get into a little more of the next chapters regarding the nature and necessity of it, uh, the task of it as well. Uh, what it aims to do, I think, is what we're going to dive into a little further. Um, and the, the thing I love about Bonson, and I'll just kind of maybe end on this, is, you know, he had no problem sharing scripture with every point he made. Um, mm -hmm. There was never, you can never accuse anything that Bonson writes of not having enough scripture references. Whether you would agree with the scripture <laughs> references or not, in some situations, okay, we can talk about that. But you can't accuse him of not being consistent with a presuppositional model of putting scripture before all else. So it was a fully, it was a fully biblically based apologetic methodology. And that's Correct. the beauty yeah. of it. Yep. So, all right. Well, fantastic that's time, fine, John. I, yeah. I really appreciate this. And um, I think we're going to have a lot more talk about in the future. And for everybody who listened to this first uh, podcast episode, we thank you all very much. We, Hope that you like and follow uh, our Facebook page, Preconditions of Intelligibility. And uh, thank you again That's for listening. And yes, and we will talk to you soon.